Hey, Rose, do you ever call up Royally Obsessed on Alexa? It's one of the easiest ways to listen to the pod. You can hear our latest episode every week there, thanks to Amazon Music, which has a full catalog of podcasts, including Royally Obsessed. All you have to do is say, Alexa, play Royally Obsessed on Amazon Music. Oh, no, mine is listening to me say that right at this moment. <laughs> a royal reminder, new episodes drop every Thursday. Tune in on Amazon Music. Now on to the show. Rise for their majesties of Royally Obsessed, the podcast for all things royals. Three cheers for His Majesty the King. Welcome back to Royally Obsessed. I'm Roberta. And I'm Rachel. First, follow us on Instagram at Royally Obsessed Podcast. Also, send us an email, info at gallerypodcast.com. I always say this at the bottom of the episode, but just so nobody misses it, please also leave us a wonderful five-star review. We would love, love that for the holidays. Absolutely. Your gift to us. <laughs> Roberta, we have so much to discuss this week, as always. We are digging into the fallout from Endgame and that Dutch translation. We also have a diplomatic reception that we got to see last night and so many tiaras. Kate's third annual Together at Christmas concert is this coming Friday. They are taping it. It'll air Christmas Eve. We're going to talk about that. And we're also joined by Tom Quinn, author of the new book, Gilded Youth, An Intimate History of Growing Up in the Royal Family. He is a repeat guest on the pod. It was wonderful to welcome him back. That and so much more. And now it's time for the Weekly Royal Cocktail. To continue the festive theme, I thought it would be fun to do a royal refreshment from the Dorchester Hotel in London, which, remember, we visited in May during the Coronation Weekend. Yes, it was so beautiful then. Oh, my gosh. Stunning. Well, they have a Christmas welcome cocktail. I looked this up. It's called the Sugar Plum, and I couldn't find the exact recipe, but this is most likely similar to what it is. The sugar plum is gin, grapefruit juice, and a pomegranate reduction. Doesn't that sound lovely? That sounds beautiful. And I think you definitely need to garnish it with your pomegranate seeds. That is yeah. like the <laughs> delicate cocktail touch accessory. What do you call it? All the cocktail lingo of the season. Like I, when you whipped that out last week, I just loved that. You know what I'm really into now is like I'm going to make for the holidays really big ice cubes with the pomegranate seeds frozen in them <gasps> or cranberries. Stop yes. it. And it's going to okay, be gorgeous. Can I ask one more cocktail related technical question? Do you seed or de-seed? How do you say it? The pomegranates yourself or do you buy them already seeded? Dave does it. I do not. I do not. It's a huge amount of work, right? And it's a huge waste. I'm like, there's so much that you have to throw away with the pomegranate that makes me really sad because we live in a city and can't compost. So it makes me really upset. But, but you can, I but I take, reap the benefits. Can't you take the pomegranate membranes and make a really good like face peel? I went to a facial oh. once and they said that it's actually one of the best ways, like it's an enzyme peel or something, scrub <gasps> it on your face. I will look up this recipe Please, and send dude, it to you. Please, because I'll save whatever we do. Yes. Usually we just toss all of it and it feels so wasteful because it, the rind is so thick. And yeah, it's it's an undertaking. It's like it takes him a little while to do it. So I'm here for this already. I, but I know. yeah, I'm, I'm going to do the same. That's such a good idea. The ice cubes. I love that. Is your Christmas shopping done, Roberta? No, I am so not done. Are you done with Christmas no, shopping? No, no, I'm more. I, it's in progress. I was more productive on Black Friday this year. So I feel a little proud of myself in that regard. But but now I think I'm in this 
zone of trying to figure out not about the ultimate gift because I'm not at that phase, for example, with Finn, who's only five, but I need Mm. to figure out how I'm sprinkling the magic. Does that make sense? Like it's like when you were a child, right? You had those things that made you really believe in the season and everything. So how do I create that? (laughs) So hard. What about you? I have a friend who's actually doing only local gifts, like from local shops. And I think that's so genius. And I want to do that next year. But I have a few things that I have to run out and get like from stores. I'm mostly done with online ordering, which was big for me because I don't want to have to pay express shipping. That's my that's my big hang up. Yes. Can I say one more thing we t- before we talk about the Royal News? I was just going to say my hot tip is that, I, well, I took Friday off. This is my, I cannot wait this for this Friday. week. This coming Friday. But I'm going to, the plan, the itinerary for the day is I'm bopping around to museum gift shops because oh. they actually are just like absolute gold mines of unique, one-of-a-kind gifts. And I feel like we live in New York City. Like I've got the Met, I've got the MoMA, I've got all of these things. So that's my big plan for gifts. So that's going to hopefully cross the rest off. Genius. I feel like the Whitney would have good gifts too. Yes. I'm off Friday as well because I'm going to Disney with my niece and nephew. (laughs) We're about to have the most festive weekend of all time. Can you please take all the notes? Because you know I'm going to Disney in March next year with Finn. So please, I need all the intel. I feel like you're a professional probably. You've gone before. My sister-in-law is a professional. She has an itinerary for us. I kind of am leaving it up to her. But my niece is four and my nephew is almost two. He'll turn two while we're there. So it's going to be so much fun. The decorations are all up. Royal news. Let's do it. (laughs) But first, a listener email while we are sipping our festive drinks. We got a follow-up note from Martha about her meeting with the Duchess of Edinburgh, who visited her church, St. George's Anglican in Ontario. I think everyone remembers this. We read it a few weeks ago. But she wrote in just to follow up after the actual encounter with Sophie quote, I have to tell you that Duchess Sophie was absolutely incredible. She spent a couple of minutes talking with me about my kids, and then she did the same for every family in that room. There were hundreds of people, and she gave focused and gracious attention to each one. She asked my kids, who are teenagers, about what grades they were in, what they wanted to do with their lives, then shared an anecdote about her own daughter. My kids were a bit lukewarm about meeting her, but afterwards raved about what an amazing experience it was. I feel like future Roros were born in that moment. (laughs) One final detail from Martha. Sophie was beautiful. Then this made me laugh. I feel like generally most of us go about our lives thinking that we are more or less put together, but to see someone up close in clothes that are so perfectly tailored, not a piece of lint or stray hair to be found with every bit of her face and outfit immaculate. Well, it just makes me think that I should probably never leave my house again. She's (laughs) kidding, of course, but I totally hear that. I can't imagine how like perfectly quaffed Sophie and all the royals always are. But thank you, Martha, for writing in. We get to live vicariously through this amazing encounter. I love this and the pictures that she sent with this. You can just tell. Sophie's stunning. Stunning. And her style has just been impeccable lately. I did want to add, you guys, because it is December, write us, DM us, and send us a voice memo with your favorite royal moment of the year. We could end up reading it on an upcoming episode, but I think it's a great time to reflect on everything we've experienced over the past 12 months, which has obviously been a lot. It always is with the royals. I feel like the best way so it doesn't get lost in the shuffle is if you email us your favorite royal moment of the year, info at gallerypodcast.com. That way we definitely don't miss it. And now, this week in royal history. All right, this week in royal history, we're flashing back to 2021 and 2022 with Kate's Christmas Carol concerts. As you mentioned at the top of the episode, Rachel, together at Christmas in 2021, it was honoring those who helped their community during the pandemic. 
There was that surprise piano recital by Kate. We're going to play a clip of that. All the presents underneath Light the fire, it's getting cold Another year of will it snow Mixing lager and champagne Something I'll never do again Round the table banter flows Praying no one rocks the And that was musician Tom Walker that Kate was playing the piano for. Just stunning. All those candles surrounding them. I know. I just think the whole night was so magical with that dress with the red bow. I remember Mm -hmm. how striking that was when she stepped out. And that was her first annual. Yes. So festive. And then last year, a lot more poignant. It was dedicated to Queen Elizabeth II. A lot of outfit chatter. Because remember, this happened. They filmed it on December 15th, 2022, one week after the Harry and Meghan Netflix (sighs) special dropped. Right after our Boston trip, which I cannot believe was a year ago. Do you remember when we woke up and saw the trailer? Because the trailer dropped when we were in Boston. Yeah. And all of the kind of headlines were about the Garnet color scheme that everyone seemed to get the memo about. And this united front that Megan kind of called out. She said that, you know, she wasn't allowed to wear certain colors of other royals. And so they all sort of went with Garnet that year. I don't know if that was just what felt like the most festive from their closets, but it was a really, really interesting kind of headline that made the news. This year's concert will be the third annual and it's taking place this Friday, day after our episode airs. I'm sad As usual. About it this week. I know. <laughs> The king and queen are not expected to attend. The palace has said that they have longstanding prior engagements, but George, Charlotte, and perhaps Louis will be there. Eugenie and Beatrice, Sophie and Edward, Princess Anne might make an appearance. The Middletons, not sure, but last year James and Elise showed up with Carol and Michael, so that was exciting. So hopefully we'll see a whole slew of faces. What would shake up the headlines more than anything is a Louis appearance, right? Oh my gosh. A picture of all all three of the kids would just make our year. (laughs) (laughs) According to the Palace, this year it's dedicated to those who work to support babies, young children, and families in our communities across the UK, and a celebration of the golden opportunity that the birth of a new baby brings. I just didn't realize that the theme was changing year to year, and I think this is really nice and in line with Kate's Shaping Us campaign. A reminder that, like I said, it's filmed Friday, but it will air on Christmas Eve. So we have to wait a little bit on ITV1. And I think BritBox, didn't we yes, watch it on that's Brit how Box? we got it last year. And I remember I put it on. It was one of the most fun nights for me because I wrapped gifts while having it on in the background and my whole family stayed up super late. And it was just, I'm so into these Christmas concerts. Does that like speak to my age? Like what's going on <laughs> that I'm like, like Hannah Waddingham's concert. Yeah. Like this is where I'm at in my life, I think. It's just like, put that on the background. It's happy and merry and it brings me joy. It's even better than Christmas songs because they feel like you can watch it as well. So I I love that idea. Exactly. We are taking a hard pivot from Together at Christmas to talk about the fallout from Endgame. Of course, we touched on this very briefly last week because it wasn't as it was just bubbling up, I think, when we taped. But it's been made official. The Dutch translation and thanks to Piers Morgan, the royal quote unquote racists were named. And according to the Dutch translation, it is Charles and Kate. This sparked such and continues to spark such a monumental controversy. I wanted to go into the questions and let's just talk of them through as we go, Roberta. Yeah. Before you get into that, though, I do want to say too, like you mentioned this already, but it was just bubbling up and we really wanted to see kind of how this all sort of how the pieces fell about. So last week, we feel like we're a little bit late on this, but that's just because we wanted to kind of 
take a step back and see what happened. Well, and it's also still in progress, too. And I actually think when we taped, the names hadn't been released. Just that there were, they, it was like rumored that they were a part of the Dutch translation. We were starting to Google. But anyways, I think the main question, some of these main questions, how did this version of the book get sent? This has been making the airwaves all week. According to the translator, and this is a lot what a lot of people theorized, was that the, they were working from an early draft, probably to get a jump start because then they get the final draft so close to publication. And for whatever reason, that early draft became the main draft used. It's still so bizarre, though, Roberta. I mean, a lot of people are saying it's a publicity stunt. But Omid is very, very definitive. I've watched so many interviews that it was not a publicity stunt. And I think if you look at it, that way, it really does overshadow the rest of the book. So I can't, that would never, to me, have been the intention because the book has is so much more than this particular detail. This feels like a conspiracy theory to me. And I can't see yeah. that Omid would actually want to do this. One, because of how uncomfortable and in hot water he looks like when he's talking about this incident. Yeah. And two, because it opens up so much liability for him and legal action against him. I know that there was chatter even that the palace was considering legal action. So I just can't give any credence to that. Yeah, absolutely. So then I just think the fallout, I wanted to talk about that too. We shouldn't be surprised at this point, but the royal family was just business as usual in the aftermath of this, that Kate and William in particular had to step out for the royal variety performance the day after Piers broadcast the names on air. Very huge spectacle of that moment when he did that. I think that so much was made of the of Kate's choice to wear a Safaya cape dress because it is a brand that was so synonymous with Meghan during her royal tenure. Many people were saying, is this Kate's choice to wear a revenge dress? That feels kind of off to me. I don't know. I felt like that was mm-hmm. something that I couldn't really recognize. In fact, I felt like whereas we're always drawing lines with the royal fashion and making clear, decisive, like what it's nodding to, I could not see that with this. To me, that felt more confusing. What did you feel? My eyebrows went up because I was like, this is such a Megan brand for me. The gown she wore in Fiji during their farewell tour, that red cape dress with Sophia. She, I think she wore it three times as a royal, and I believe other royal women have worn it as well. But this was the first time for Kate. It felt like such an interesting moment. But at the same time, I think... Would that be a show of support versus? Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, what's the meaning? I I don't think it's like stealing your designers, Ross, like your Rolodex of designers. Like, that that doesn't feel like what this is. It feels more like I'm supporting someone that you supported and a London based label. It's named after this woman's daughter, created by women for women. Like, it feels very supportive to wear a brand. I wouldn't say that it's a call out or like a smackdown of Megan. I don't know. Yeah, I feel like the wording revenge dress, because Diana wore that in response to the infidelity admission. I just am not seeing that direct line. In fact, I I truly felt more confused by that choice. But she looked stunning. Kate looked amazing. I also think what's been interesting in the fallout is the rumored request, you know, according to sources that Harry and Meghan step in and weigh in and speak up and defend the royal family here. But that just feels super off because that's exactly what they were asking for throughout their whole time. And that was not given to them. And we still don't even know if those actual requests are being made. It's all so murky and just a weird time. And we still don't know if this is even true. So I feel like for them, you know, Harry and Meghan, they really didn't want this to become an issue. They really downplayed it at the end. And so I feel like they are going to stay so far away from this as much as possible. 
And I think also we had that sighting of Megan yesterday where she was out in Santa Barbara. And again, like if we're drawing so much from what people wear, the headlines around that were that she was wearing very, you know, dressed down green hat, which I loved, and black leggings. And then she had that tennis bracelet was that was a gift from Charles. Is that a statement? We're making we're trying to pull so much and we are right mm-hmm. to pull so much from what they wear. But I think it's it's just, you know, this has been a confusing time, I would say. Yeah. I will say I thought that the cap was an Eagles hat and I was about to get really excited, but it's not. Yeah, it's like I a think tennis. It's, some, it's, 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 it's a, a tennis charitable charity. thing. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. But next steps. I think so many questions still swirl about this whole revelation from Obin's book. I think mainly about the context. That's what people seem to be demanding, including Piers. I hate to mention him so much in this episode, but people still want that. I think that it's very hard to understand. Again, the names don't really give us much. And and that's what's kind of feeling extra harmful for me is getting the names without context. It it doesn't accomplish anything because I think it also undercuts a conversation, the important conversation about unconscious bias within the royal family. Everyone's so fixated on how dare Kate, how dare Megan, that narrative, and those thoughtful conversations are lost. But I think people do want to know more because just seeing those names in a Dutch translation doesn't add much to the conversation, I guess is my point. Yeah, I think too, like this is just furthering division amongst yeah. royal fans, which is really tough to see because I think even more so than before, people feel like they have to either A, believe this narrative and then like defend the person who they feel like they should or B, like totally attack Omid who didn't mean for this to happen. I I feel like that's the hardest part too is that he's in such hot water, but this is something that was never, ever supposed to hit bookshelves. Yeah, exactly. And I think just some other thoughts, just is this the final nail in the coffin between William and Harry at this point? I think that there's a lot of headlines and maybe they're planted, maybe they're not, that they want nothing to do with Harry and Meghan now. And that's just sad because I think this comes right after the heels of us hearing that some olive branches were being extended, phone calls were happening. And also we're we're hearing that from Buckingham Palace that they are, quote, considering all options. They didn't mention legal action, but I do think that this is something that backroom conversations are being had. So yeah. anyways, I just think that this is going to continue to play out. Totally. Oh, I was just going to say one fun fact. Copies of Endgame with the translation error I saw in the Washington Post are selling at eight times the value of the original book. Can you believe that? <gasps> They're still out There's there? There's only about 5,000. But if you bought it, oh, yeah, if you bought God. it. Crazy. That is so out. Before we move on, I feel like this needs to be said is that if you're Kate and you didn't say anything and this is a total mistake, I'm not I'm not, you know, wipe abs, you know, absolving her of any crime or anything like that or trying to wipe her slate clean, but I I do think if you're Kate and this you, this is a total mistake. I mean, how awful that is that you can't really say anything that you pretty much are just you have to just keep calm and carry on. I don't I just feel like for the history books, that's really tough. The context really is is challenging because we also know that Harry and Meghan never used the word racism and then walked back those claims. Like, they never mentioned it again. In fact, Harry did walk them back in an interview for the Spare Press Tour. So it's just hard to have all this resurface in this manner without a lot more information or anything constructive to do with it. And so weird to see Pierce Morgan kind of flip on the royal family. <laughs> Like, Piers, you're just here for the drama. That's all you want. The headlines, the headlines. Yeah. 
All right. Well, like you mentioned before, our second order of business is just that the royals are back to business as usual. See what I did there? So Kate first up opened a children's surgery unit for Evelina. She's been patron of that since 2018. Prince William was selling the big issue like he has in years past. He was in Hammersmith and popped up by surprise. The overlap kind of threw me a little bit because they posted William before posting Kate's event, but they were pretty much at the same time so just that kind of whose engagement gets precedent is so interesting but the big one i wanted to talk about was this buckingham palace diplomatic reception because for the second time in two weeks i mean man we're lucky we saw lucky oh gosh tiaras and gals i love the holidays because i love all of these very fancy events the Princess of Wales was in head-to-toe rewear from that June Jordanian royal wedding. She was in a pink, sparkly Jenny Packham dress, Queen Mary's Lover's Not Tiara, the Greville Chandelier earrings, which I love, love. Might be one of my favorite royal pieces. They're so stunning. Just dripping in diamonds. Roberta, me too. Oh, my gosh. With the tiara, so stunning. And the like sort of metallic sparkliness of the dress. I love the whole combination. We have to give a shout out to Camilla as well. She was in white Fiona Clare with a repeat Girls of Great Britain and Ireland tiara and the Queen Mother's stomacher. Okay, this word never heard of never have heard until last night. A stomacher. A stomacher is actually a brooch designed to be pinned to the middle of a bodice of a gown. I had to look up. There's a Wikipedia page all about it, but it was like a tiara used to show status in earlier times. And I think they started in the Renaissance, but it really accented the bodice of a gown, especially when bodices were starting to be corseted. So you have this giant jewel on the front of your bodice. It can be taken apart to be like three different brooches, which is really cool and practical. Like (laughs) I don't think you can call a stomacher, a diamond stomacher practical, but that's what I'm doing right now. It was so striking. Can we just spend one more second on the stomacher? Like I want to give one more shout out also to Camilla because she is just reaching into the jewel box. Like this is exciting stuff. That's what I love. I think Charles has something to do with this too, because I think it was the queen mother's stomacher and we know he had a close relationship with his grandmother. I think Charles is opening up the jewelry vaults now that Angela Kelly is gone. He's like, move over, sister. Like, unlock the vaults. We're taking it it all out. And she loves jewelry, Camilla. It's very exciting. What I want is for Kate to wear all the jewels, Camilla to wear all the jewels, Sophie, Anne. Like, I hope that all the royal women get to raid the vault. I also would love a stomacher expert to come on the podcast. (laughs) We'll get a stomacher expert. You know what's funny is when you Google stomacher, some of the things that come up are like (laughs) body chains. Like. Wait, I did that last night. I was like trying to research it. That's so funny. Oh, I know. It's so weird. You wore a body chain. I was like, don't tell me more. (laughs) No, 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 I I mean, like like, when I was looking it up, when I was looking it up, I was just like trying to understand it. When you put stomacher in, I thought, how many things are called stomacher? Like so much like to send us on this rabbit hole with like body chains on your waist. That's not what I'm looking for. It is a rabbit hole. Yeah. Like what people wear to like festivals and raves. Like that's they're like early 2010s, like body jewelry. Kind of weird. Anyways. We did need to give a, one more fashion mention, this time to King Charles, who wore a Ooh. Greek flag tie at COP28. This got quite a bit of headlines, particularly because recently Prime Minister Rishi Sunak canceled a meeting with the Greek prime minister very abruptly over discussions over the returns of the Parthenon marbles, which are in the British Museum. They're owned by the British Museum. 
I believe he canceled the meeting after an interview with the BBC. The Greek prime minister said that the marbles at the British Museum were akin to the Mona Lisa being cut in half, which I guess angered 10 Downing Street. And so this is why they canceled it. But it seems like Charles gave a little bit of sartorial soft power in saying that he supported Greece on this issue. We know, of course, his father, Prince Philip, was born in Corfu as the Prince of Greece. It seems like this is his way of speaking up about the issue. And I don't know. It was interesting because Rishi Sunak then tweeted a picture of him and Charles with the Greek tie. So maybe the government was trying to actually smooth things over and use Charles. We don't know. It's bold. I love it. It is bold. Soft power. Sartorial soft power is a great, great word. And now our wonderful conversation with author Tom Quinn. Ro Rose, please join us as we welcome Tom Quinn back to the pod. He is the author of the brand new book, Gilded Youth, A History of Growing Up in the Royal Family, From the Tudors to the Cambridges, and that is out this week. We welcomed him on the podcast in April last year to discuss his book, Scandals of the Royal Palaces. It is so good to have you back, Tom. Thank you very much. It's great to be here again. And you're joining us from London. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Tea time in London. Tea time. I love it. And I love that you're participating while we're chatting. All right. So to kick us off, we just wanted to know Tom, what made you decide to delve into the storied and occasionally controversial upbringings of royals, ranging from George I to Queen Victoria to the modern royals we know today, like William and Harry? I got really interested in in the subject because my previous books about the, the royals sort of overlapped with the subject of my latest book, Gilded Youth, because there was always a lot of stuff about what it's like to grow up in the royal family. And it, when I looked at the details and the history, I realised the most extraordinary thing that in essentials, the way royal children are brought up or the way they were brought up 600 years ago is pretty much the way... They're still brought up now. And I was thinking no other family in the world still has the child raising practices and habits that their ancestors four, five, six hundred years ago had. And it produces the other thing that I thought was really interesting about is it produces some very strange adults because so many royal princes and princesses, they grow up without knowing their parents. So I thought a book that looked at this extraordinary fact, because it does seem to me to be extraordinary, would be interesting. And the more I dug into it, the, the more I realised there was to it. You know, so it's a really fascinating subject. Yeah. And you you said that so much has stayed the same over the years. Has anything changed over the last century? I mean, is there, you know, what stayed the same between Lilibet and Margaret when they were growing up versus now raising the younger generations? Elizabeth, Lilibet and Margaret, they saw their parents for roughly half an hour a day, sometimes an hour. That's all. The rest of the time, the, the actual childcare, it was, it was all done by paid staff, people who were brought in. And often they might, they might only stay a year or two years. And in some cases, not in the cases of Margaret and Elizabeth, but in the previous generation, their father, George VI, he was really abused by the nanny who looked after him. So, But I think between Elizabeth and Margaret and their very old-fashioned, very traditional childcare that they experienced, the big step into the modern world, I think, has only really come with William and Kate. I think they're, they're resisting 
the pressure, and there is enormous pressure from the sort of the old guard in the royal family to do what's always been done. I mean, it's the most conservative institution in the world. And there are always lots of very elderly, tweedy advisors who don't like change. But I think William and Kate have resisted this and, and things will be different. I mean, for example, they're very unlikely to send the children a long way away from where they... They'll still go to a boarding school so they don't live at home, but they won't be sent... You know, as Prince, poor Prince Charles, his parents were in London and he was sent to this terrible school in Scotland, which he described as Colditz, you know, the prisoner of war camp, Colditz in kilts. It was so unpleasant. He was so badly bullied. None of the rooms were heated. You know, there has been a big change since that world. And I think it's more to do with Kate than anyone because she just can't understand this, you know, not being a royal herself. She can't understand why they don't seem to like their children. And there is a long history in the royal family of, particularly with sons, the Georges, the three, four Georges, they all hated their sons. And Queen Victoria absolutely loathed Edward VII, her son and heir. She absolutely hated him, couldn't bear to be in the <laughs> same room with him. And I think it's because they didn't grow up with them. You know, these the, the children are strangers for their parents. But it won't happen, I think, with William and Kate. And actually, one of the really interesting things I think about Meghan that hasn't been said is that one of the reasons I think she didn't like the royal family too much was... She could feel this pressure to do things in a very old-fashioned way. And I think she thought, I don't want Archie and Lilibet growing up in this world yeah. where, you know, we're, we're not really supposed to cuddle them. We're not supposed to be with them all the time. You know, so uh, there has been a change, but it's very, it's very late coming. Yeah, definitely. Based on your research, we're just going to cut right to the chase. Who was the best royal parent of all of the all of the different uh, royals that you looked at? I would say that the best royal parent, leaving aside Meghan and Kate, leaving leaving them out of the question for now. I think yes, yes, they're so modern. Yes, but they're very good parents. But I would have said the late Queen Elizabeth II, her father George VI. I would say he was a really good parent because, well, the main reason was that he had daughters. I mean, George VI's father, George V, George VI used to say he was an absolute monster. He was a terrible parent. And I'm quoting from, from stuff that George VI wrote. And I think he was determined to be a different kind of parent, but it was much easier for him because he had daughters. And even better, when the daughters were born, there was no real prospect that Elizabeth would become the monarch mm-hmm. because it was the shock abdication of her uncle that suddenly made her father king. And then she became, Elizabeth became next in line. But by the time that happened, they'd had a very close relationship, Margaret and Elizabeth, with their father. And it was very unusual, but it was based on the fact, one, that they were girls, and two, initially at least, they weren't going to be directly in line to take the throne. But having said that, Elizabeth was still brought up by nannies It's just that she wasn't sort of kept quite so far from her parents if she'd have been a boy. Yeah, I really loved the stuff that you wrote about Bertie in particular and how he kind of struggled with that, wanting to be a hands-on parent, but also, you know, sort of shying away from PDA with his daughters too. And I thought that was really interesting. Did you uncover a favorite story about royal child rearing, something that you hadn't heard before? Yes, there's a story about Elizabeth. I hadn't heard this before, that when she was growing up, 
You know, the famous phrase was that her father used to say, I mean, I think this phrase is a bit unkind in some ways. Uh, it's a sort of, I don't know, it's a bit of a backhanded compliment. He said Elizabeth was his pride and Margaret was his joy. I think, you know, in a way that was a nice thing to say to both of them, but also in a way a rather cruel thing. And I think one of the effects that it had on Elizabeth was to make her, because she always wanted to make her father proud, and he was very uncomfortable with hugs. He just didn't, couldn't do them because he'd never had them. But my favourite story about, about her is that because that she had this reserved, though very loving father, she became slightly, I suppose we'd say now, slightly OCD. And I hadn't known this. So every night she had to put her slippers perfectly positioned in her bedroom. They're always in the same place. And every afternoon as a child, she had these small jam sandwiches cut in circles. So she started to have these when she was six or seven. And when she was 90, she still had to have them at the same time in the afternoon. Wow. So, you know, even with her very affectionate father, she still in a way, had to organise her life in such a way, in this slightly OCD way, to cope with the fact that, you know, she was his pride because she was going to become the monarch. And he was unable, although he wanted to. He was he was very, he used to cringe when, if the two girls ran up to him to give him a hug, he would just, you know, he just couldn't, because he'd never had this, you know. That's the trouble. It's the, you know, the poet Philip Larkin summed it up perfectly when he said, man hands on misery to man. You know, if you've got a terrible parent, it's very hard for you to be a really good parent because you learn how to be a parent from the previous generation. Or in the royal's case, you learn from people who are paid to look after you. They're not really committed to you because they're strangers. You know, they come in, they get their money, and when they don't get paid, they just disappear. Yeah, well, this is a great segue to talk about Princess Diana. She's, of course, well known for shaking up the status quo when it came to royal motherhood. But why was emotional attachment between parent and child so hard to come by for the royal generations before her? And what made her style so unique? I think before Diana, most of the royals, for good or ill, they sort of bought into the tradition. First of all, they cut off from normal humanity and surrounded by flatterers the whole time, and also surrounded by people who believed completely in the product, as it were, believed completely that if you changed any of these traditions, then disaster would follow. I mean, I know, for example, Prince Charles, when he was a child, his mother wanted him to go to Eton, which is not that far from Windsor Castle, because she knew he was a sensitive boy. Mm-hmm. But because of this tradition that boys must be in the royal family, boys must be tough. They must mature early. They've got to be tough and strong. He was sent to this terrible school in Scotland. The idea was to toughen him up. That was Prince Philip's idea. And I think that's the kind of thing that had gone back centuries, because in the distant past, if you were a prince who was going to become king, you would have to lead your army into battle. So you would need to be tough. But they were still doing this in the 20th century when there was no real need, because, you know, kings no longer had political power. And yet there's this sort of tradition that carries on. They've got to be in the army. They've got to go to a tough school. And I think Diana... Although she wasn't royal, her family had married into the royal family for centuries. I mean, arguably, someone once said to me that Diana's family, the Spencers, were actually far more aristocratic than the royal family. 
you know, they still have their enormous mansion in London, the family, the Spencer family. But she loathed the way she'd been brought up because she'd been brought up very much like the royal family. The same tradition applies to the aristocracy. She'd had a series of nannies um, to look after her as a child, never saw her parents. In fact, one of her nannies, there's a wonderful story, one of her nannies ran into the sitting room with a knife and shouted at her father, to the sea, to the sea, and then ran out the back door and just kept <gasps> running, never came back. What? Oh, my gosh. Why? Well, she was slightly mad. You know, they say anybody <laughs> who wants okay. to be a nanny for the royal family has to be slightly mad. So I think yeah. Diana grew up wow. with all this. She also grew up with the tradition that, you know, everybody was emotionally reticent, very cold, as her parents were. You know, and it was a whole world of shooting and fishing and nobody doing any work at all. She hated it. So as soon as she had her children, she made a very conscious effort, as we all know, to take them to McDonald's, take them to Disneyland. She really tried to do it. And I think to a large extent, she succeeded. But even even poor Diana employed nannies because it was the tradition. Yes. You know, even though her own nannies she didn't like, she still did it. We get caught up in this, don't we? Yeah. Well, switching gears for a second, because we do want to talk about the chapter on Charles's upbringing. You know, some of the anecdotes you mentioned, no kisses or hugs from parents, a slew of nannies and governesses, one hour a day, like you mentioned earlier with his mother, Queen Elizabeth. How do those tidbits shape the man we know today as king? Well, I think the fact that poor Charles as a child was completely brought up, raised by paid staff, has had an enormous effect on him. I mean, I think for a start, it has meant that he's always been looking. I mean, I don't say this. It's, a, it's an easy, glib thing to say, but I think it's true. The reason he couldn't establish a good, strong relationship with Diana was that she was too much like him. She'd been damaged mm -hmm. as a child. She was oversensitive, as he was. She was desperately looking for someone who was strong, emotionally strong and capable of affection. Of course, Charles wasn't because Charles was looking for the same thing. And he found it in Camilla. In, I've always thought Camilla is, in a sense, the mother he didn't have as a child. That's why yeah. he's never been able to, to, you know, to not see her. Even during the early years of the marriage to Diana, he had to see Camilla because she's got this strength that Diana didn't have and Charles didn't get from mm -hmm. his, his own parents. I mean, there is a funny story about one when he was a child. There was one nanny he had called Mabel Anderson, who he absolutely adored. But, of course, there was a problem with paid nannies is that they might just leave. And um, mm. Mabel was so popular in the royal family that the problem wasn't that she left. The problem was that the Queen... Charles's mother wanted to spend time with her. They used to watch television together. And so <laughs> to some extent, Charles lost the one woman who, as a child, who was very close to him. He lost that woman because his mother wanted to watch television with her. So I think wow. um, the other thing about Charles, and I'm afraid it's also true of William, because William had a very similar kind of upbringing, but in many ways worse because of what happened to his mother. The other thing about Charles is he's he's very irritable. He's very short-tempered because if he doesn't get what he wants, he loses his temper very quickly because not growing up, in, you know, growing up with a nanny who just does, mm -hmm. isn't allowed to be cross with you, isn't allowed to tell you off or scold you means that he's both neglected, but also spoiled, you know, spoiled in the sense that if he doesn't get what he wants, he has a tantrum. 
So I think, you know, it's produced someone and sending him to a school that was designed to make him tough has had the opposite effect. You know, he's famously sensitive, oversensitive. So I think all these things that happened in his childhood, that's what they've produced. They've pr- produced somebody who's quite clingy. He's de- you know, he clearly clings desperately to Camilla because without her, he feels he's back in the nursery and there's nobody there for him. Yeah, that's so interesting. Well, we wanted to close by asking about the next generation of working royals, specifically William and Kate. How will their parenting style with George, Charlotte, and Louis impact the next generation? And what impact will that also have on the entire monarchy? Well, I think really the biggest change in in child raising in the royal family really has happened with Kate and William. I think William is one of the most intelligent royal princes in the last century. I mean, to be frank, his father, his grandfather, his great-grandfather, they were not intellectuals but by any means. But William is, is much more self-aware and he's got Kate there who has a totally different, normal, warm, affectionate family background. And again, I think as with Charles and Camilla, William was attracted to Kate precisely because she doesn't have the cold aristocratic element to her. She's got this warm family, middle-class family. So I think everything will change. She's been, they've both been much more involved with the practical business of caring for the children. And I should say there's been a lot of resistance in the royal family to that. been all these efforts to persuade them to do much more of what's historically always been done, even though everyone knows it's damaging. So I don't think Kate and Will have been able to go as far as they would have liked to have gone, but they've gone a long way. And they do, they spend, they, you know, they bathe the children when they were young and spend a lot of time with them. So it's very different. And I think that's been very good for the monarchy because they've stayed in the monarchy, unlike Meghan and Harry, while making these changes, which is very difficult to do. It's easy to leave and make the changes because you're not under any pressure anymore. But they've stayed in, they've made these changes, and I think it will have an enormous effect on future generations because Louis, George and Charlotte, they'll grow up remembering and having been, as it were, created by much warmer, more affectionate parents who at least spend a lot of time with them. Yeah, the sea of change. It it goes slowly, but it's, yeah, in motion. The royals are, in a sense, they're always a couple of generations behind everyone else, you know, but they do catch up in the end. It just takes them a long time. It'll be fascinating to watch George, Charlotte, and Louis grow up in that kind of. Really interesting, yeah, but I think they will be very different. Well, thank you so much, Tom, for joining us. This was so wonderful. And Gilded Youth is out now and available for purchase. Thank you again for joining us. Thanks very much. It's time for the Royal Highs and Lows. Before we adjourn the royal pod, our highs and lows, my low is just that Prince Andrew was spotted smiling, riding a horse in a Grenadier Guards jacket, despite being relieved of his military associations in 2022. These photos were published in the Daily Mail. He just looks so happy. And I just don't like that he still kind of rocks the gear that he's not supposed to be wearing. Yeah, very true. Milo is this Westminster wedding scandal. Are you following this where the Duke of Westminster has this crazy wedding coming up in June, something to look out for on the royal calendar. But he's also a godparent to both George and Archie and a major friend of both William and Harry. But it's said that there will not be a wedding invite for Harry and Meghan. 
I think mainly due to just royal drama. And I mean, not to blame the bride, like she doesn't want to have it all overshadow this big wedding. But it's just kind of sad. I think for me, the low is just the ripple effect of all this. And it's like choosing sides in a divorce. I feel like it's just tough. Yeah. It is interesting, though. I saw like Megan didn't even go to the coronation. She's probably not going to go to just a friend's wedding. Yeah, it probably would be. I feel really sad for Harry. Yeah. William might even be the best man. Oh, wow. So awkward. All right. My high this week is a possible 2024 tour coming up. We're going to mark our calendars early for this. The Royals might be heading to Australia, which is super exciting, next spring or fall. I saw conflicting reports about when it would take place. It might be timed with Chagum, the uh, Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting in Samoa next year, and it would be Charles and Camilla. But I have a feeling that Kate and William have some big tours coming up as well, and those will be announced soon. So I'm excited for that. I love that it's like not fully confirmed, but it's like they dangled this with all the headlines going on this week. It was a good nugget to, to reveal at this time. And we all need something to look forward to next year. So I'm putting this on the books. My high is, I think this was my high last week too, but the Crown Part 2 trailer and premiere, Roberta, I could not stop tearing up and crying when I watched Part 2. I feel like the art, the just beauty of the what the Crown has delivered for all of us is going to be back with Part 2. I think it's just going to be so poignant, especially watching a year after the Queen has passed. And we see the, you know, Imelda Staunton planning her own funeral, also flashing back to VE Day all in the trailer. Very excited. We also had the premiere last night. I thought, how magical to see Diana meeting Diana with Elizabeth Debicki and Emma Corrin. It was so cool to see those pics and also reminded me what we were robbed of during the pandemic, not having those big grand celebrations of the crown with premieres. I just loved in the trailer the Claire Foy cameo that made it for me. Yes. Yes. But to see William and Kate, it's going to be so strange. I just have to say that right now, and I will say that again. It's going to be so strange. But I think there's still, like, royal guesswork is back. Because remember when we watched the first, like, several seasons? We just didn't know the full story. And I think that this seems so beautifully woven together. I can't wait to watch. Just one week from today, guys. That went by so fast. <laughs> you just, like, took my so breath fast. away with that one week thing. I'm like, <laughs> wait. Okay. Roberta froze for a second. (laughs) What? Okay. Wow. We have a lot to do before then. Just a reminder before we close, please, like I mentioned before, leave us a royal rating, a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Spotify as well. Five stars. A holiday gift to us. That would be lovely. We had a wonderful review from CJS1019. This person wrote, favorite podcast. I look forward to it every Thursday. Thank you so much. Remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow us on Instagram at Royally Obsessed Podcast. Send us your favorite royal moment of the year. We want to hear all of them. Info at gallerypodcast.com. And till next week, God, God save, save the, pod. the pod. Her Majesties of Royally Obsessed have retired for this episode. God save the pod. And if you fancy the podcast, give Royally Obsessed the royal rating of five stars on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Royally Obsessed Podcast. And join our Facebook group, Royally Obsessed. Royally Obsessed is a gallery podcast production.